Hello and welcome to the Oleaster podcast, the audible version of articles on oleaster.org. I'm Devin Phillips, the author and your narrator. Without further ado, let's dive in. Invisible Barriers and the Hospitality of God Part 1 of a series on hospitality and revival. Hello and welcome to my inaugural Substack post. I'm still learning Substack, so if you have any suggestions that would make the content easier to read, please do let me know. Thank you for your readership. Here's Invisible Barriers and the Hospitality of God. A motley crew hailing from different continents and at diverse stages of life sat together in a small room in a monastery-turned-guesthouse on the island of Cyprus. We were all there to attend a program that oriented us to the Middle Eastern region and learn from some of our favorite Bible teachers. About halfway through our 12-week training, we heard an inspiring talk on discerning the body based on 1 Corinthians 12-14 through and decided to put the principles into immediate practice. Taking each person in turn, we named the various strengths we saw in the men and women we had lived, worked, studied, and prayed with every day of the last six weeks. When it became my turn to hear the gifts that my classmates saw in me, a man from Côte d'Ivoire immediately suggested evangelism. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Evangelism would never have made any list of gifts that I guessed for myself. Shy and introverted, I skew heavily towards non-confrontational. As I tried to process this surprising pronouncement of an evangelistic gift, a memory came to mind of my church teaching on the offices of the Church of Ephesians 4.11. At this particular meeting, the speakers asked people to go to different parts of the room according to which of the positions listed in Ephesians 4.11 best describe them. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or teacher. Shepherds and teachers had robust representation, and prophets and apostles had smaller but respectable numbers. In the dark back corner were the one or two evangelists, eccentric and sorely statistically underrepresented. The visual parable was powerful. Very, very few want to be evangelists, much less claim it as a calling. When I questioned my friend about what led him to conclude that I was evangelistically inclined, he shrugged and said, you like to feed people. This is an undeniable truth. I do like to feed people. But in my mind, my compulsion to host people with good food, beyond it being an expression of love or service or even an artistic outlet, found more of a parallel with my impulse to teach But to this West African man, conceptually separating hospitality from evangelism was nonsensical. I gratefully received his observation and pondered its implications both personally and culturally. Several years later, I was sitting in another guest house many hundreds of miles away from that old monastery in Cyprus, this time in the Golan Heights. One of my German friends, a man named Holger, was visiting. Holger runs a program in his Black Forest home called Das Experiment. To truly taste what Das Experiment is, you must hear from Holger himself. Still, my woefully inadequate summary is that he has a group of interested skeptics in his house to discuss the Bible during a weekly meal. 
sounds simple enough, but he argues that the meal and fellowship are indispensable to his outreach, the foundation for fruitful discussions and open hearts. The church in the West has lost this vital connection between the table and discipleship. People accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. My takeaway from that condemnation is he must have been eating and drinking with people all the time, Holger reasoned. When I shared that hospitality evangelism connection I'd learned years ago in the old monastery from my Ivoirian friend, Holger became even more animated than he usually is. You must write about this. Write about the invisible barriers we have, the false dichotomies when it comes to evangelism, discipleship, and the table in the West. That particular encouragement to write about the invisible barriers that blind us to the table-based anchor of evangelism happened years ago. Still, the topic has never been far from my mind. Often, the Church of the West, or the Global North, or however you'd like to divvy up the world, has relegated hospitality to an admirable personality trait. The mother, who always has a cookie jar filled, or the conversationalist who puts you at ease and makes you feel interesting. A lovely but inessential thing. Certainly, hospitality is not a universal expectation or a core identifier of a Christian person. But even the most cursory surveys of hospitality in the Bible will leave you with a very different impression. Once you start reading with a theme of hospitality in mind, it is hard not to become inundated with passage after passage, where the welcome of the stranger is more than a convention, a code, or even a command. It is a base essential because it is modeled to us repeatedly through God himself. From the fourth day of creation, we have a hint that the crafting of matter is not merely an artistic endeavor, but has a hospitable purpose. Quote, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. The English rendering of this phrase, signs and seasons, is quite reasonable, even poetic. The sun and moon are indeed our calendar markers for days, months, and years. But in Hebrew, the word translated here as seasons is moedim. If we were speaking of seasons of the year, such as spring or autumn, or in the case of Israel, the rainy season, we would expect to see the more common word for units of time, et. Moedim is more specifically used when it comes to the appointed meeting times of God and his people. The purpose of these heavenly bodies is not only to be general timekeeping devices, but markers of God's meeting times with these strange little human beings that were about to enter this universe home of their creator. And lest I fail in making the whole case of the significance of using Moedim in Genesis 1, Let's flip our Bibles from Genesis 1 to the penultimate chapter of Revelation. Chapter 21 begins with the glorious declaration of the consummation of salvation history. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As we read further details of this magnificent future, we see that, quote, The city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Of course, there is no need for the heavenly lights because there is a much brighter and better glory in which the redeemed bask. But there is equally no need for the sun and the moon because God is tabernacling amongst his people. And they do not need to set meeting times 
for God and his people are never apart. The ultimate purpose of everything, from the tiniest atom to the furthest galaxy, is to pull us into this abundant, joyful, restful communion. In this time between the alienation of man from his heavenly father and the adoption of sons for which all creation groans, we still enjoy the hospitality of God. When walks together in the garden in eastern Eden were broken by exile, God still clothed our father Adam and mother Eve. Later, we hear of Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, newly sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, summiting Sinai. There they beheld the God of Israel and ate and drank with him. After the disastrous and adulterous incident of the golden calf, God suggested that the people make their own way to the land promised to them through Abraham's covenant. But when Moses refused to journey to the promised land without God's presence, this gentle answer returned. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So the Hebrews brought the tabernacle that Moses had pitched, the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, with them in their wanderings. God still set a table in the wilderness when his impatient people cast aspersions on his hospitality. When entering into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, God's law tutored the children of Israel in hospitality. One such example is in the Shemitah, or sabbatical years. Once every seventh year, the Lord forbade the Israelites from cultivating and harvesting crops. These sabbatical years were years of respite for the land. But they were also a reminder of the wilderness journey from Egypt to Israel, where manna was provided without planting or reaping. The unearned provision came out of this Sabbath rest, not only for the tribes of Israel, but also for the enslaved people and resident aliens living in the land. Everyone from the least to the greatest ate from the same table, the uncultivated and non-proprietary fields of the land at rest. Israel's tithe feasts also exemplify God's broad and abundant generosity. The land and its produce are his, and the harvest of grain, wine, oil, and the firstborn of the flock tithes he shares in an annual feast with his people. The households of Israel go out to the place where God's name dwells and eat whatever their hearts desire, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, a veritable smorgasbord. Every three years, this feast is relocated to individual towns where the combined abundance is laid up so that, quote, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. These yearly tithe feasts were God's discipleship tool. They demonstrated God's character. To partake of the meal was to learn the fear of the Lord. Every third year, the Israelites had the opportunity to practice godliness by imitating God's generosity closer to home. The food that first belonged to God, he entrusted to his people. His people, in turn, gave to those who had nothing, the marginalized of society. These principles of tithe and gleaning, care for the stranger and the widow, and sabbatical and jubilee are deeply embedded into Israel's psyche and national life. This spiritual formation occurred at the table. Perhaps 
It was this deeply rooted hospitality that later prompted consternation in King David. The king of Israel lived in a, quote, house made of cedar, but the king of the universe was dwelling in a tent. Though David was not destined to build the temple, his concern for the glory of God's name brought this stunning promise from the Lord. I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Glory, safety, rest, and home. Here we might be able to take up the traditional exclamation of gratitude from Passover. Dayenu, it would have been enough. Already God's generosity had exceeded even David's wildest expectations, but the Lord was not finished. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Through this generous impulse to build God's house, David, the man after God's own heart, had his household established for eternity. God built him a house and founded a covenant with David's dynasty. Human hospitality, so delightful to the Lord, seems inextricably bound up in covenant and resurrection. The patriarchs and the prophets tell story after story to illustrate this pattern, a glorious motif ultimately culminating in the son of David presiding over an unshakable kingdom. If hospitality finds itself at the center of salvation's story, maybe, just maybe, it's time for a revaluation of hospitality in the contemporary church. Keep an eye out for next installment in this series, Hospitality and Resurrection, next week. We will trace the topic of hospitality's connection to life from the dead, an epic journey through the scriptures. Recommended Resources Articles a Call to the Table by Holger Reinhardt. Books Saved by Faith and Hospitality by Joshua W. Jip. The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Formative Feasting Practices and Virtue Ethics in Deuteronomy's Tithe Meal and the Corinthian Lord's Supper by Michael J. Rhodes. This has been a recording of Invisible Barriers in the Hospitality of God from oleaster.org. If you enjoyed listening, please feel free to read or listen to other articles at oleaster.org. Receive new content in your inbox by subscribing to Substack or follow on X or Instagram at oleasterbranch. Any and all feedback to this or other articles is welcome. 
If you have a question, comment, correction, please feel free to email contact at oleoster.org. The music in this episode is Zion Train by Alexandra Simeonov. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Maranatha. Maranatha.